but I think lawyers, academics, um, everyone who's trying to make their point in, in, in the written medium, they should realize that when people are making decisions about what you've written, they're, they're making those decisions as human beings. And they're the same people who cry at movies. They're the same people who say awe when they're looking at baby pictures or puppy pictures on Facebook. Uh, you know, when, when, when someone puts on a robe, uh, it doesn't mean they're a different kind of human being. And you have to find a way of connecting your ideas to how real people experience life. That's, that would, that's the one thing I've learned from journalism. Welcome to another episode of Love Council. Today, we profile Jonathan Kay. While few people think of Jonathan as a lawyer, after completing an engineering degree at McGill University, John scored perfect on his LSAT score and was admitted to Yale Law School. His legal education placed him as a member of the New York Bar and working on Wall Street. With the momentum of his impressive legal education and experience, Jonathan jumped into Canadian journalism where he is well known for his work with the National Post, The Walrus, and most recently, Quillette Magazine. While Jonathan left law in 1998, his story beyond law is remarkable. Today, he is one of the most widely known writers in Canada with an accomplished life of book authorship, editorial positions, documentary journalism, and most recently, podcasting. Jonathan is no stranger to controversy, and this podcast episode is no exception. Join us as Jonathan discusses his path in and out of law, his path into journalism, the importance of free speech, the creation and success of Quillette magazine, and even issues surrounding the recent controversy over the Law Society's Statement of Principles. Before we begin today's episode, I want to say thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis Canada has recently launched a solo and small e-brief. The link to this e-brief can be found on our podcast page. From there, you can sign up for a subscription where this e-brief will provide up-to-date news and important articles for solo and small practitioners. The latest e-brief includes an interview with family law practitioner, Susan Blackwell. It also features articles highlighting solo and small firm trends, free practice notes, and more. Again, you can visit that by going to our website Clicking on the link for Solo and Small eBrief, the latest LexisNexis initiative towards solo and small practitioners. We now take you to our episode with Jonathan Kay. So I was originally a, a metallurgical engineer. This is going back to the 1990s. And I think like a lot of engineers, I, I enjoyed the math. I enjoyed the science. I was drawn to the technical aspects, but then when I graduated, it, as with most professions, the, the applied part is different from the academic part, and I found myself in research labs and factories and real-life science is messier than classroom science, and I found that what I had enjoyed were some of the theoretical aspects. And then I went back and I got a master's degree and did, um, I wrote computer code to simulate, to simulate engineering processes. That's the sort of thing I liked was the math. Mm -hmm. uh, but at that point I could either, when I finished that, I could either have gone back into industrial, the industrial world or continued to do a PhD, which I didn't want to do. Uh, I shared an office with someone doing a PhD and it's kind of like seven years of doing the same experiment and it wasn't, wasn't for me. Uh, the world needs PhDs because they provide specialized uh, knowledge, but you have to have a certain personality for it, and, and I don't have that personality. Uh, and then, plus, on top of that, I was this was uh, recessionary times. It was the early 90s. It was hard to get a job in any area. The people I saw who were getting jobs were people in the field of law. I had a good friend who went to McGill Law School, and we spent a lot of time studying together. And I said, you know what, I'd, let, let me try this out. I took the, uh, the LSAT, the Law School Admission Test, and people with an engineering background who have some facility with language tend to do really well on that test because it tests logic and um, for whatever reason, people who've gone through a technical background uh, usually ace that test. So I got a really good mark on that and I said, oh, wow, let's, maybe I can go to a good law school. And I, and I went to law school and then 
<laughs> to continue the story, it's essentially the same story at law school and, and then becoming a lawyer is that I love the theoretical aspects. I love the writing in law school. I loved reading cases. I loved arguing with other know-it-alls. Um, uh, but then I graduated and I worked at a law firm. I did tax law. And um, <sighs> tax law, I stuck with it for a year or two because it's probably the branch of law that at least the ones I experienced, is the most like classroom activity. I mean, it really is like a logic puzzle. You know, so-and-so has made this amount of money in a certain kind of investment. There's a cross-border transaction involved. There's a pass-through entity. And, you know, you can see how it, it can become very dry and abstract. But then at the end of the day, if you win the case or, you know, the IRS permits whatever corporate structure you've created you're basically just making a rich person richer. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's, it's not like it violated my Marxist sensibilities, <laughs> but it's not what I wanted to spend my whole life doing. Like, um, and plus the fact is that when I, you know, the best way to determine if a career is, is right for you is look at who your boss is. Do, do you want to have their life? Um, do you want, and I don't just mean like live in their house or marry their spouse or <laughs> that got dark uh, no what i mean is like do you want to spend your weekdays uh you know managing the kind of clients they do and and facing the kind of challenges they do and uh and i didn't want to do that i i had great respect for the lawyers i worked for but they they were different people than me they wanted different things out of life um uh, in tax law like corporate law a lot of people often get off on big deals you know like Late at night, we'd be working and, oh, man, I remember that time we did that $300 million deal and that $900 million? And it's like, who cares? You know, I mean, it's like uh, intellectually, a $300 million deal is no different from a $3 million deal. It's the same tax law. And, and there is a certain kind of Bay Street, Wall Street mentality that really does get off on like how many zeros are at the end of this deal. I had no interest in that. It, it was not interesting to me. Uh, I was much more drawn to intellectual controversies and cultural controversies that I saw playing out in, um, you know, in the newspapers and magazines I was reading. And that's why I made the jump. So why not then not transfer into an area of law that would have been more conducive to that uh, attitude? Uh, partially, I think it's because I was working in New York, and the New York legal scene is, is just so competitive that the only people, at least back then, who I saw making partner, uh, and, and like everybody else, I ultimately had my eye on, you know, how do I, if I stayed in this industry, how would I be successful? You really do have to specialize. Like, I remember even when I was doing interviews, you know, I, I, was, I was being interviewed by partners who, like, they specialized in particular kinds of uh, commercial airliner leases. Like, that's you know, they were the world's best at that. And that's how they made partner. And I mean, there were obviously are some generalists who are just rocket scientists, and they're able to bounce around. But when I looked around, I saw that to be successful in that field, at least in New York in the 90s, you really did have to eventually become somewhat aggressive about specializing, uh, or at least making a name for yourself in some kind of specialty. And there was no kind of legal specialty that appealed to me that much, except, and this is what I've heard from, from people giving career advice, uh, when you're going to make a career jump, take the time to look at the aspect of your existing career that you like the most. Uh, and in the case of uh, of law, I did enjoy the writing aspect. I even enjoyed doing really dry, you know, memoranda about uh, new provisions of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, my boss would say, uh, oh, work is slow, John. You know, can you write us a memo on this new provision governing, you know, S-corps or whatever? And <laughs> it sounds boring, but I actually enjoyed it. I, I like the idea of, of distilling 100 page, pages of regulations into into three or four pages uh, of easily understandable prose. There's, there's, there was something about that I liked, um, and I loved the idea of a career where I would do some variation of that about different subjects, not just tax, uh, every day of the week. And uh, fortunately, I found it, and I was lucky. But it was, be, it was in part because I, I knew that if I enjoyed writing about such a dry technical subject, I would even more enjoy writing about all sorts of other... Uh, subjects of perhaps greater general interest. Looking at your resume on paper, though, I have to say, you know, going from uh, engineering and then into tax law, I the last guess I think anyone would have would be a writer, uh, accomplished writer for the National Post and starting with that. So it just seems like such a contrast. Um, is this something that you took from uh, your your mother is obviously a very um, well-known writer. Do you think you drew upon that? Is it growing up in Montreal? How is it that that happened? Part of it 
is just the sheer lack of thought that I put into my career choice. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it does sound funny, uh, but I'm not being self-effacing. Like when I decided to go into metallurgical engineering, it was because my dad had been a metallurgical engineer and the chief of the metallurgi- metallurgical engineering department at McGill University lived on our street. Like it was that level of thought. Um, I, I, I probably thought more about what kind of car I was going to get than what I was going to study for four years at university. And this was not untypical of people of my generation. Uh, I'm 50. Uh, I, I started, I, got, uh, I attended CJEP, uh, as it's called, junior college in Quebec in, in, the, in the late 80s. And um, there was a group of people, certainly in my peer group, who there was still this idea that if you went to a decent university and studied something respectable, you'd be able to go out and get a good job. Like it was still that era. When I talk to young people today, that is absolutely not the way they think of the world. They realize that from the, even in high school, they have to start doing things like robotics and uh, taking the right math courses and uh, taking the right summer jobs and developing the right resume. Uh, I, people make fun of millennials, but in a way, they're, they're much more hardworking in terms of, uh, as teenagers, developing the skills they know they'll need to have successful careers. That was absolutely not the case among my generation. We had much more privilege, um, much more a sense of entitlement. And I think in my case, I was just lucky because that sense of entitlement ended up rebounding to my uh, benefit in terms of the laziness, laziness of my choices. Because by the time I, I ended up becoming a writer, which is probably what I was always meant to be, I had sort of stumbled into these other careers that ended up giving me grist for for my career as a writer. Like having a knowledge about the way uh, law systems work in democratic countries and the business world and, and Wall Street and um, deal-making and stuff like that, which I had a, a small window into during my legal career, was really valuable when I was uh, writing at the National Post about business issues. I wasn't with the Financial Post, but I I was a general-purpose uh, writer for during much of that period, and, and I had some fluency in that world because of that. And, and certainly, even more valuable was engineering. Uh, I wrote a book about 9-11 conspiracy theorists, and their, their conspiracy theories largely revolve around technical theories in regard to civil engineering and the manner by which the World Trade Center collapsed um, uh, on 9-11. And there was no way I could have written that book if I didn't have an engineering degree. Uh, so stumbling into these careers that ended up ultimately being wrong for me ended up being a gigantic blessing uh, as a writer because I just had a more varied background and more intellectual tools that I could apply to the act of writing. What about going to uh, Yale? You went to Yale Law School, and is that doesn't seem to me something you'd stumble into, but is it the same sort of thing? It was totally, I was totally stumbled into, um, into it. I, you know, I... I got a perfect score on my LSAT and everyone was like, oh, wow, you got to apply to the best law schools. And I was like, okay. So uh, I, I applied to to Yale and I got in because somebody there was impressed by by that number on the standardized test score. And as I say, if, if you go to, if you study engineering or physics or math and you take the LSAT or the GMAT, any of these standardized tests, you're probably going to do well because the rigorous program of study um, that you that you get in, in STEM really puts you two or three steps up compared to people in the liberal arts. And um, and I, I didn't know where New Haven was. You know, I, I didn't know that Yale was better than Harvard or Stanford. It just, I looked, you know, I said, oh, it's a six-hour drive from Montreal. I can manage that. And I, <laughs> it was just, when I look back, I it's shocking how careless I was about making these decisions. Uh, I, 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 I literally think it was on the level of like women seemed to think it was cool when I mentioned that like I might go to Yale. Like it was, it wasn't that superficial, but it was like close to that. And then I was at Yale and I met these incredibly smart people who, and it was the first time in my life where I I often felt like the dumbest person in the room. Uh, You know, these stories you hear about like people who were pretty good high school football players and then they tried for the college football team and suddenly they just get like landed on their ass in practice because suddenly they're they're playing against the best high school players from other places and that's kind of the way it was at Yale where uh, you know I was kind of used to sort of leading a discussion or whatever and or being maybe among the smartest people in a conversation in some spheres uh, it was the opposite when I went to law school is those bunch of people who made me feel dumb 
And that period at law school was largely a remedial period for me. Like, I realized I knew nothing about philosophy. I knew very little about literature. Uh, and I spent all my time, you know, people, I remember one guy was, he was saying, well, this violates the Rawlsian conception of social justice. And I was like, mm-hmm, yeah, so true. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell does that mean? And I, I, I had no idea who Rawls was. Like, and I remember I'd go back and forth to Montreal. It was a six-hour drive. Uh, I think it was on, on the 87. And I would spend like the whole time listening to these books on tape, which were like philosophy for dummies, literature for dummies. <laughs> I was just like, and then, you know, a week later, someone would talk about a Rawlsian theory of justice. I actually knew what it meant. And it, it my, my, my autodidacticism in that area was very, um, it was superficial, but at least it gave me the vocabulary to, to at least understand people and participate in these discussions. And by the time I graduated, I didn't always feel like the dumbest person in the room. You're ahead of your time with the uh, the audiobooks instead yeah, of podcasting. This on audio cassette. I, I remember I would I would base it on the number of cassettes in the package. So it's like, oh wow, that's a twelve cassette audiobook. That's a long one. That's a there uh, and back. We used to. Uh, by the way, I remember going to the Westmount Public Library in Montreal and renting them. Uh, I think uh, senior citizens still do that. Uh, of course, now we have podcasts and stuff like that. But uh, if it weren't for those audiobooks, I'm I'm not sure uh, I would have made it as a writer because I a lot of my self education in fields outside engineering and law it took place through audio cassettes i want to return to that because there's a lot of um to discuss about podcasts in particular uh, some of the recent ventures you've been involved in but just before we move on from yale was there any particular professor or or student or even just the american education system itself that was uh, influential in to what you're doing today there was a guy named jack balkan who taught me torts uh very very smart guy and i remember he, he developed something called, like, I think it was the crystalline theory of, of tort law. I think if, if you look it up, he, for some reason, I think he was at the University of Missouri or something when he developed it. Like, he was one of these guys who taught, like, at a middle-tier law school and was just so brilliant that he ended up in the Ivy League. Uh, and I remember there was a couple of folks like that who, who made me realize that a person with a technical engineering frame of mind could make it in law. Uh, tax law in particular, if you looked at the sort of people who ended up in tax law, there was a lot of introverts, a lot of people with a strong mathematical bent. Um, and that's one of the reasons I went into tax law. It's, it's, it's about puzzles. I was probably less drawn to, to some of like the broader areas of law. Like we had a joke at Yale where um, so-and-so it was like the and courses, like law and philosophy, you know, <laughs> law and the human condition. Uh, and you could kind of just put any noun or noun phrase after law and teach a course at Yale. There was a guy named Bruce Ackerman, um, who a very influential constitutional law scholar. And I remember taking his course and for the first time, U.S. constitutional law, and I think constitutional lawmaking in general actually made sense after I took his course. There was also a guy named Bo Burt, who's since passed away, who taught me my small group constitutional law. Um, there was a guy named Alan Schwartz, who t taught, uh, taught me bankruptcy law. Uh, hysterically funny guy. He was kind of like very Woody Allen in his presentation and body language. And I remember seeing a guy like him gave me confidence that I might be a good cultural fit for law. Like one of the intimidating things about going to a place like Yale is, I mean, you do meet a lot of stereotypical blue bloods. Um, I mean, I think one or two of my classmates actually wore ascots. Uh, so sometimes you think, hmm, you know, maybe maybe I'm not going to work out here. Uh, but sometimes the, the professors you meet actually, it's not what they teach you; it's the way they present culturally and demographically. Which is why, by the way, I do. You know, even though I sometimes I'm accused of having conservative views on identity politics, I do get it when people say they need role models who look like them in, in on campus. Um, you know, if you go to a university and you know you're you're black or you're Hispanic or you're East Asian or or whatever, or you're a woman and and, and you just don't see anybody in positions of authority at that campus who look like you, I I get it that that you're you're going to lack confidence. You're going to think, I'm in an, I'm in an environment where people like me don't succeed. Uh, and even as someone, you know, I'm a white guy, um, but even, even for somebody like me, it was reassuring to see people who, you know, had my religious background, had my personality type, who, who were teaching courses. It, it reassured me that there's room for me in, in this institution. So moving forward, you joined the National Post from the beginning in 1998. 
and then you left in 2014. What was it like to be part of this now major Canadian publication startup? And what were some of the lessons you learned from that? So my joining the National Post is like this epitomizes me kind of stumbling through good fortune through life and that I think the National Post was maybe the last major broadsheet newspaper to be created in North America. It was created in 1998. Like who was creating, even then, who was creating newspapers, right? This is three or four years after um, Netscape Navigator had had shown the world what the future of, of mass distribution news would look like. Uh, and, you know, it was Conrad Black and uh, and Ken White, who's the, the original editor. And again, just by sheer good luck, Ken White happened to, to know my name because I'd uh, in the late late 90s, I was sending out freelance articles, and I think I, I actually faxed him an article when he was editor at the now-defunct Saturday Night Magazine, uh, and he happened to be passing the fax machine and looked at it and said, oh, this is interesting. And uh, again, you know, sheer good luck. It was also this weird thing, which I think still exists in Canada, that Canadians still have this inferiority complex regarding the United States. And the fact that I had this Ivy League credential on my resume just made Canadians, you know, I made the shortlist for everything because it's like, oh, you went to Yale. Okay, well, you seem qualified, uh, or at least they'd, they'd interview me. Um, and, and I think if you're a Canadian and you, you do go to the United States, either to, to Wall Street or to a major university or something like that, you can come back to Canada and people just... They take you seriously, even if maybe it's dubious. Like I had no writing experience and I got hired to the editorial board uh, position at the National Post, I think largely on the basis of the fact that I went to a good law school. So what was your progression like through National Post and why did you end up leaving to go to the Walrus in 2014? So I was there for 14 years at the National Post. Um, was it 14 years? 16 years, because I think you got it right. Um, you know, I started out as a rank and file editorial writer when newspapers still had rank and file editorial writers. I, these days, that's sort of like a luxury that most newspapers don't have. Uh, usually the editorials are written by like the same person who who copy edits the, the opinion pages and edits the letters and, you know, <laughs> probably goes door to door distributing the newspaper on weekends. Like it's, uh, but those days you had this thing called an editorial board where it was this old fashioned concept of like, you know, five or six Buster Keaton types who, who would sit in an office and, and talk about the issues of the day and well, what, sh- what should we say about Pinochet and what should we say about Senate reform? Uh, when, I, when I look back at it, it's, it's so pre-Twitter, like it's so pre-social media and, and it, it harkens back, again, it's, it's only 20 years ago, but it, it harkens back to this era where people really trusted the media or at least pretended to trust the media and the media pretended that people were pretending to trust us like I think even then the editorials didn't move the needle much on most issues. I think there have been empirical studies done that show, for instance, that newspaper endorsements don't really affect elections, for instance. Um, but but we were taking it all very seriously. Like we, would, some of us would spend like the whole day writing a three hundred word editorial about like what we should think about Angola. Like like <laughs> like anybody cared about what some twenty five year old white kid from Toronto thought about politics in another continent um at the same time it it gave us a lot of like good training like everybody on that editorial board um went on to to do interesting things uh alex rose who was also on that editorial board uh, he became um a famous writer i think he lives in new york and he he writes uh sort of these thick history books that uh always seem well reviewed uh neil seaman uh was on the editorial board he became a successful uh investor uh john williamson became an mp in uh, in new brunswick uh i think i think he just got reelected. uh <laughs> ezra levant i wonder what happened to him <laughs> uh marnie Supkoff, uh, who joined us later um uh, Tasha Kerridan joined us. She's a, she's a radio host now and, and is, is quite well known. Uh, Natasha Hassan, who was, um, she had more experience than the rest of us. I think she was already in her 30s, which I think she was the most senior there. She's she's uh, opinion editor at the Globe and Mail. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting, smart group of people. Um, unfortunately, you know, this is, this is a, a bygone world. I, I don't think most newspapers have 
groups of six or seven people whose only job is to sit around, discuss the issues of the day, and write editorials. That's a luxury they can't afford. Was there anything in your law degree that set you apart, whether because you were assigned particular things or it gave you a perspective that perhaps other writers didn't have? Yeah, uh, for better or worse. Um, you know, I think when you come from a specialized background, as, as I did, there's a tendency to, to exaggerate the, the importance of those issues in, in general purpose editorial meetings. So I was always pitching ideas about, about tax law because I knew about tax law. Uh, the, the bigger problem for me was that my writing style was very, was still very much a, um, a legal memorandum-driven writing style. Like, I was convinced that the best kind of writing was the, the most logically complete style of writing, which, you know, if you're writing a legal brief, maybe, although even, even in that context, maybe not. I mean, ultimately, journalism, you need human interest. People care about people. And even when you're writing editorials, you have to find a way to bring things back to the fact that, you know, that principle that people tend to care more about empathizing with others than with abstract principles. Uh, and there were people there who were very patient. You know, I, I mentioned Natasha Hassan. She taught me a lot. She was patient with me, um, despite my, you know, my frustrations. Um, There's a guy named John O'Sullivan who, who went on to other projects. Uh, he was... He was you know, very experienced. He was a speechwriter for Margaret Thatcher, actually. Uh, he, he was patient with me. Uh, Ken White, who, who actually is now my publisher in the book industry, I'm publishing a book with his publishing house uh, later this year. Uh, he was patient with me. <sighs> among, <laughs> among all the good luck I've had, another piece of good luck was the fact that I got to do my training at a time when big companies still invested in people and were patient with them. We now live in an era where even the biggest companies, usually like you're, they hire you on Friday, you're expected to start being productive, productive on Monday. Whereas I don't think I was like a productive journalist for the first couple of years. I was still learning, learning the ropes. And even when I started becoming more of a manager of other people, uh, I guess in the mid-2000s, the people I was hiring were people who I saw could already do the job because they were bloggers. So I remember I hired Adam Radwanski, I hired Chris Selly, I hired Matt Gurney, um, I mentioned Tasha Kiridan, Marnie Supkoff, John Turley Ewart, uh, all these people have gone on to either uh, Robin Urbach. Um, uh, you know, they're either still in journalism and successful or they're successful doing other things. But I knew they'd be successful because they were already successful when I hired them. Because the technology of blogging meant that I had proof of concept of their skills at the time I hired them. Uh, and so these, these self-publishing tools it's an amazing boon to people who want to develop their careers. But it's also the case that because these tools exist, somebody like me who is hiring people can be lazy and say, I'm not going to, you know, spend hours interviewing you to see if you could be a good writer. I'm just going to spend two minutes looking at what you've written for no money on your own initiative, on your own website, see if it's good. And then I'm going to hire you and say, that thing you're doing, do it for me. I'll pay you money, but make it twice as good. And, and that's kind of how I hired people. I just, it's not, there's not many other industries that work that way, where if you hire somebody, you kind of just instantly know what you're going to get because they were previously doing the exact same thing just for their own little shop, right? Uh, and especially in the field of opinion writing, because opinion writing is self-directed. Uh, if, you're, if you're a reporter, it's a little different because if, if I hire a reporter, and say, you know, go cover that story, go cover that story, go cover that story. A general assignment reporter doesn't always have control about what they're covering. Opinion journalism is a little different. You're even junior people who are in the field of, of opinion journalism, it's largely self-directed. They're writing about things that they feel passionate about. And so you kind of know what you're going to get when you hire these people. But, so that was, that was certainly the case with me. Sitting as an editor, uh, also being a journalist yourself, seeing all these great writers come before you and presenting work, uh, what is something that you think lawyers could learn from great writers as a matter of journalism, and, and in particular as it relates to persuasion? I think the, the use of human interest is, is incredibly important. And it's amazing how often I read not just the writing of lawyers, but the writing of academics. There is a feeling in, in academic circles, and law school is part of the academy, that it is kind of a cheat to, to talk about individual people when you're trying to make a larger point. So sometimes I'll read like an 80-page academic paper, 
and there's there's really no mention of of individual people or the suffering or the enjoyment or the, the cost or the benefits that 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 individual people will receive from the policies being discussed and and I realize that you can't turn every legal brief or every peer-reviewed paper into a sort of like maudlin examination of, of, of one particularly affecting uh, human case study. But I think lawyers, academics, um, everyone who's trying to make their point in, in, in the written medium, they should realize that when people are making decisions about what you've written... They're, they're making those decisions as human beings. And they're the same people who cry at movies. They're the same people who say awe when they're looking at baby pictures or puppy pictures on Facebook. Uh, you know, when, when, when someone puts on a robe, uh, it doesn't mean they're a different kind of human being. And you have to find a way of connecting your ideas to how real people experience life. That's, that would, that's the one thing I've learned from journalism. So let me ask you about a particular story, and I learned this today. Um, as I understand it, you went and interviewed Conrad Black while he was in custody. Uh, is that right? I interviewed uh, Conrad Black at what was then, and perhaps now is still called, the Coleman Correctional Facility in Central Florida, uh, near Orlando. Uh, at the time, it was perhaps still, uh, I'm sort of some, I'm ashamed to say, actually, it was the only time I've been in a prison. Uh, yeah, I went to go interview him. I'm, I'm not sure if... I think I subsequently wrote about it, but I don't think it was my intention for it to be an interview. I think I just... At the time, he was one of my columnists. He, mm-hmm. he, would, he was... It was a weird situation because he had access to email, which he would use to file his columns, but it would come through this weird U.S. government electronic intermediary. So I get like some notification saying, a prisoner is trying to contact you. Uh, you know, press here if you would like to delete the message and not be bothered by them again. You sort of had to go through this process just to just to get it. Like, I think the system was designed to protect outsiders from what maybe the officials assume will be spam from prisoners. Uh, but he, he had this primitive way of communicating with us. We were publishing his columns. Uh, and I, I was in Florida anyway. I forget why. Um, and I, I, I went to visit him. It was the only time I've ever been in a prison. Did it feel strange knowing, you know, you're there probably in your capacity as a journalist, but also probably flashbacks of being a lawyer and what it would be like to have perhaps taken a different path in life and being in prison a lot. I actually was pretty, um, I don't know, I was ashamed of myself, but you know what, like, there's so many journalists, and I was one of them, who, you know, just were always writing about things like, um, uh, I don't know, criminal justice, uh, a lot of people the last few years have been writing about solitary confinement, uh, we write about what was, you know, the old-fashioned term is the underclass, and there, there's so many easy ways to get some real-life exposure to it. Like, um, you know, I was embarrassed that I was, I, you know, I was 40 years old, and this is the first time I'd ever visited anybody in prison. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was nothing to have prevented me from, um, from doing this kind of journalism. You know, I'm, we're here in East York. We're only a couple of miles from what used to be the Don Jail. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it doesn't exist in the same way now, but... Um, Part of the problem with, with journalism is that there's a lot of people who just sit in a cubicle and, and do their reporting electronically. And, and even small slices of reporting, you know, like so many Canadians I know have never been to a First Nations reserve. Uh, they've never been to a prison. Um, you know, they've never done a ride-along in a police car. You know, when I, I've done a couple of those. Uh, there, there are many police forces in Canada who will offer ride-alongs to journalists. We often don't take them up on it. Uh, some of my best stories uh, have come from just exposing myself even a little bit to real life. And then I remember sitting there with Conrad Black in this room, and I remember one of the reasons I felt embarrassed for myself was like, the experience was nothing like, you know, if you watch Prison Break or it's sort of an old TV show, or any of these supposedly gritty, realistic portrayals of prison life. It's, you know, there's bulletproof glass, and by the way, this does exist, I'm sure, in some prisons, but it's like bulletproof glass and... You know, the, the haggard prisoner, you know, grabs the phone and puts his palm up to the window and locks eyes with his visitor. And the whole scene is like this very sort of isolating, desperate vignette. It was nothing like that. It was like this big room. It was like the departure lounge at an airport. And 
there were kids running around and and Conrad was it was amazing <laughs> he was pointing out these people oh that guy over there you know he's he's a drug lord and uh, there's a different woman who visits him every week and you know I think he's got 17 kids by my count and they're all <laughs> darling like he knew the, the 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 personal lives of all these people because there were no secrets right and um and I thought my god like this is nothing like what I nothing nothing like what I thought this aspect of prison life was about which which is fine there's lots of things we're ignorant about in life but like I've written about criminal justice many times and uh, and this is just like reminding me how ignorant I am about many of the things that I write about. And often it's because people ask me to write about it. If you're an editorial writer, sometimes you just, you have to write about stuff that you don't know that much about. It was, it was one of the things that, that made me feel sometimes like a fraud. So taking that, that rawness and obviously how that type of visceral feeling can be transitioned into journalism You've now uh, got into a lot of podcasting with Wrong Speak and also uh, heavily involved in the magazine Quillette, um, both of which, uh, one by its very title, um, suggest a welcoming controversy and getting people to think. So let's start with Quillette. Um, it, what seems to be in many ways a reaction to many movements in social justice. Um, is that true? How did it start and how did you end up getting involved in this? So Quillette was started by uh, a woman named Claire Lehman in Australia. Uh, she only started it a couple of years ago. I think it was like maybe late 2015, something like that. Uh, and it now has, I think it gets 3 million page views a month, a million u- unique visitors a month. It's, it's become an extraordinary phenomenon. As with many of these products or services where they just very suddenly uh, become a huge phenomenon, it's because there was a pent-up demand that no one else was meeting. So many conservative media sites, opinion sites, uh, they were kind of like in lockstep with with the Donald Trump phenomenon or with populism in general, like this populist brand of conservatism, or if not populism, like this highly partisan brand of, of conservatism. Like one example I would cite is Commentary Magazine in the United States, which this this venerable institution, which was which is now, and for quite a while now, has been edited by this guy, John Podhoretz, John Podhoretz is a great writer and he's an interesting editor, but you know he's he's very much a creature of 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 the Washington uh, political wars and, and and many American think tanks have been completely politicized either along Republican or Democrat lines, even though they're technically five hundred one c three organizations. And there's a lot of conservatives who I think are totally alienated by this, and they really enjoy um, talking about. I guess what I would call classically liberal principles, things like free speech and due process and, and uh, you know, the sort of principles that Edmund Burke would have recognized. Um, you know, conservatism's historic function of being a moderating influence on fads and, and dangerous tendencies. Uh, and at the same time, they were also socially progressive. Uh, you know, the, the folks who, who, who write for Quillette and run Quillette, like, if you asked most of them about things like abortion or... Um, I don't know, a drug policy, uh, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts issues of, of policymaking, you'd probably hear like pretty socially liberal responses. The, the, the thing that they're, they're not liberal on or progressive on um, compared to the, the most avant-garde postures that you see in social media is we tend to be a little stodgy on issues like due process and free speech, and we, we stand up for those things. And there was nothing on the landscape that catered to that mix of what I just described. That is to say, social, socially progressive in the way that term would have been defined, say, 10 years ago. Um, so more like a classic libertarianism. Well, that... no, but, but not quite libertarian either. Like, you know, when I think about libertarians, um, you know, think about the Cato Institute or something like that, uh, they tend to uh, dive pretty strong into things like, you know, demanding privatization of certain aspects of the economy. And they're very suspicious of the welfare state. One of the defining aspects of Quillette and this, this so-called uh, intellectual dark web movement, of which it's part, there's a lot of people who, who are quite happy with the, the welfare state. And, and somebody like me who, you know, I think income inequality is a big problem. Uh, Michael Shermer uh, wrote a great piece for us where he was talking about how America is never going to come together politically until conservatives, you know, catch up with the welfare state as it was conceived by FDR, which they still haven't made peace with. And at the same time, 
progressives make peace with the fact that the basic unit in society is the individual, not the group. And, and he was sort of proposing this grand political bargain, which I happen to agree with. Uh, but if you take all the ideas that I've just been describing, um, it, didn't, it doesn't really have a label or a tribe, which is fine. But it also didn't have any kind of, of media culture or any kind of um, outlet that catered to it, which is not fine. Because it meant there were a lot of people like me, like Claire, like many of the people who write for us, who were either being derided as, um, you know, out of touch pinko progressives by, by conservative outlets who didn't think we were conservative enough, uh, or we were denounced as, 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 you know, racist and sexist or whatnot by avant-garde uh, progressive outlets, which demanded the most dogmatic fealty to whatever became received cant 15 minutes ago. Uh, and, there were, and as a result, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to stay in journalism because I didn't know that there were other people who felt this way about these issues. And then Quillette came along and <laughs> my life changed, I guess you could say, because it meant that there was this outlet that I could write for in good conscience. And I don't agree with everybody else at Quillette on, on anything, on everything. But the one thing I agree with is that we have a right to disagree. And just because you have a different viewpoint on this or that issue doesn't mean you should be mobbed on social media or, you know, stop being a card-carrying member of the, uh, the reputable person club. Uh, so, yeah, uh, Quillette was created because that kind of outlet didn't exist. And I'm pleased to say that there are now several outlets that, that exist like that. There's a magazine called Aereo, uh, which exists. There's something called Her, uh, Unheard. That's U-N-H-E-R-D. These are sort of like mini versions of Quillette that have popped up in the last couple of years, and I think it's great. Uh, the Federalist Society, uh, their their website in the United States has become more popular in part because there's a lot of people who write for it and read it who have the sort of opinions I'm talking about here. Uh, it's, it's gratifying to see, and it shows that sort of the binary tribalism of left and right doesn't have to suffocate everything. There's always room for green shoots when those two camps uh, excommunicate people who have different ideas. I want to ask you about two articles that would have um, the most relevance to this podcast, because we're mostly talking about what's happening in Canadian law, in particular Ontario law. Uh, one article that came out on uh, Quillette, uh, that I read with great interest and um, showed uh, some of the issues arising from the uh, Me Too movement was, uh, quote, a literary inquisition, how novelist Stephen Galloway was smeared as a rapist, even as a case against him collapsed. I think that was by Brad Cran. And then another one more recent that is now front and center to a lot of what's happening in Ontario, particularly with the bencher election that's happening right now is Murray Klippenstein and Bruce Party's piece of how social justice ideologues hijacked a legal regulator. Um, have you, uh, are familiar with the pieces? And if so, do you mind talking about either of them, what sort of pushback you've had through uh, Aquilette? So I commissioned and edited both those pieces, um, uh, very proudly in both cases. The Brad Cran piece was about this former University of British Columbia professor named Steve Galloway, who also happened to be an acclaimed novelist, uh, one of the very few novelists in Canada who, who actually had a market for his books outside Canada, or even in Canada, because the Canadian literary scene is, is massively subsidized, and there's just very few Canadian writers that any Canadian wants to read. And I don't think it's, that's, it's a coincidence that he was one of the guys targeted uh, in the current climate, because Canadians love to chop down their, uh, their tall poppies, tall poppy syndrome, we call it. And he was, uh, Galloway was subject to what is now recognized to have been a campaign of false accusations at UBC. There was a claim that he, he raped a woman on a boat, uh, that he raped a woman in his office. Uh, both of these claims were shown to be science fiction by uh, an investigator who was hired by the university itself. She was a former British Columbia Supreme Court justice, impeccable credentials. She happened to be a woman. Uh, major portions of that report have been made public, well, not made pu publicized, I should say, um, and are well known. And he was just, Galloway was just completely railroaded out of the university. Uh, it, was, it was a real, like, witch hunt, hysterical climate. All of that is documented by Cran. And, uh, and since, since the publication of that article, um, Galloway has received uh, a six-figure settlement 
uh, for violation of his privacy from the university. The university continues to sort of stick its head in, its sand, in the sand regarding what happened. There has been no full accountability at the university. What's, what's perhaps most troubling about that is although Brad Cran's journalism was fantastic in that case, um, and you know he, he did an amazing job, I'm very proud of, of what he did, the story itself was available to numerous Canadian outlets. Like, if someone at the Vancouver Sun actually wanted to get that story, uh, there was nothing to prevent it. You know, I happen to know for a fact that uh, there's, there was a very prominent writer at the Globe and the Mail who had an opportunity to report that story uh, in, in the fullness that Brad Cran reported it and essentially said, I'm not going to do it. This isn't the kind of thing we want to do because the, the conclusion would have been at variance with the more fashionable claim and of, of, of this institutionalized uh, predatory sexism that exists on campuses, which, by the way, sometimes is very real. Uh, if, if you take a stand against false accusations and you support due process, it doesn't mean you're saying that these problems that, that in this case, you know, women endure on campus, that it's not real. You're, you're just saying you have to, every person de- deserves due process. And one of, the th- one of the things that was awful was people who demanded due process for Galloway. They, they signed on to this project called UBC, UBC Accountable, and Margaret Atwood signed on to it. And they themselves were attacked as somehow like accomplices to, um, to predatory sexism because they were demanding due process. It's, and it shows how, how the political valence of this has changed because uh, due process used to be a cause of the left, and, and rightly so, and proudly so, because... Uh, in the United States, and maybe slightly less so in Canada, but you know, depending on your race, uh, as you know, even even now, you get much less access to justice uh, in some cases, and and juries are often prejudiced against you. Like it's a real problem, but you undermine the public support for uh, the fight for equal access to justice if you signal boost false accusations against people. So I was very proud of that, and I was ashamed that the Canadian media had no interest in covering the story because the facts of the case led to a politically unfashionable conclusion. And it, it just shows how much gibberish you hear from the Canadian media when they're, you know, thumping their chest and talking about, like, you know, we'll tell, we'll tell the truth wherever it leads, um, you know, we're the fifth estate, we're this, we're that. It's just so much of it is gibberish there. Uh, they're, they're very often letting their decision-making be affected by the same fashionable posturing that people in every other industry do. Well, and I should add, it seems as though that the, as amazing as this is, the, the legal community is not immune from this either. And when this article came out, what I was seeing a lot on Twitter is um, a response that the presumption of innocence only has room in a courtroom, which is really conflating uh, different concepts. And what really the article was about is, as you pointed out, due process. And in the process of doing that, they were undermining essentially what the whole point of the presumption of innocence is in the first place. It's, it's, it's true. And I think, by the way, I think sometimes people are lazy with terminology. Like, for instance, they'll, they'll use the term censorship to describe, uh, say, a publisher... Um, destroys a book that they're going to, that they was about to be published because there's an online uh, mob campaign on the claim that the book was sexist or racist. And people say, oh, that's censorship. And it's, it's quite true that that's not literally censorship. You know, book companies can destroy books for whatever reason they want. Even if it's misguided, you could say, oh, this is mob. It's not censorship. And it's, it's also true that when we talk about due process, that term has a very specific meaning when it comes to criminal law. You know, uh, due process in, say, an administrative uh, proceeding uh, is a very looser standard. You know, I think it's just um, a notice and the right to be heard. It's like a very bare-bones standard uh, in, in many contexts. However, it also is the case that these things don't exist in isolation. And one thing you do now see in corporations and when people want to fire people and stuff like that they will cynically leverage social media and whisper campaigns against people um, so that hysteria gets gets stoked and the person um, feels completely helpless. And then they will either fire them or make them quit or something like that, uh, which might technically be 
uh, wrong regarding their sort of employment law uh, rights, but the person has been so hounded and beleaguered uh, and, and libeled in many cases, because, you know, in Galloway's case, he's actually suing people for libel, that, uh, that the institution gets away with it because the person's reputation has been destroyed by internet mobs. So you sometimes see this cynical, um, unspoken sense of cooperation between institutions and internet mobs, which are working for the same purpose, basically to get someone out of an, or- an organization. And the wor- due process, the words due process don't always capture that phenomenon. It's too complex a phenomenon to capture with that sort of a term. But institutions do have written procedures for when you can fire people and not fire a person. And in the ca- what made the Galloway case just extraordinarily uh, awful was that the university, not only did they, they fire Galloway eventually, they put out this press release that suggested he was some kind of dangerous sexual predator. Uh, you know, if, if you don't feel safe or you see him on campus or this and that, like as if he were Jack the Ripper. And and this was all done for internal ass-covering purposes. You know, you, you had a bunch of people in full panic mode. Uh, UBC had actually endured uh, a scandal previous to that where, where a bad egg, you know, someone who really should have been removed from the campus, the university had been credibly accused of not taking that seriously enough. And so when, um, uh, when, when the Galloway thing came around, they overreacted. It was very cynical. Um, so so I agree with you that you know, due process is not always the precise term, but the idea of due process, and even, not just the abstract idea, but even the concrete way it is to a certain extent implemented in the, the, the official standards embedded within places like UBC and its rules, uh, that often is violated in cases like this. And as I say, it was shameful that it... it required an Australian publication to blow the whistle on this. Um, so I was very proud of that. So that, I think, segues nicely into the other article that I mentioned, uh, because we saw when that article was published, and perhaps it's because what's happening right now in Ontario is is the bencher election. For those that don't know, it's essentially an election of the board of directors for a, a self-regulating uh, government of, of lawyers. And when that piece came out by Murray Klippenstein, there was a lot of uh, Twitter mobbing that was going on. Uh, do you see similarities or do you have any thoughts on, on wh- what that article was intended to achieve? So uh, Murray Klippen- uh, Klippenstein, what was notable about him is that he wasn't some uh, conservative pundit or anything like that. He was a well-known lawyer, veteran lawyer in, in Toronto, who had prosecuted, who had taken on countless social justice causes. Uh, you know, he, he might have been accused of being a social justice warrior uh, to, the, to the extent uh, an old school guy like him would have even recognized that term. Uh, you know, he helped indigenous people, he helped poor people, he helped everyone imaginable. And the reason he wrote that article for Quillette is he said, despite my, my commitment to social justice, I cannot sign on to an institutionally mandated policy that requires me to pledge allegiance to a set of principles that are essentially political in nature, even if I happen to agree with those principles. And in that article, he stated, I'm not a member of the Ontario Bar, but um, if I were, I would agree 100% with with what he he wrote. Uh, The statement of principles that people have to sign on to, to become a member in good standing uh, with, with Ontario Bar Association, uh, sorry, the, they changed their name. It was, it was the Law Society of Upper Canada. It's now the Law Society of Ontario. That's right. Yeah. So uh, in order to, to, to be a member in good standing, you have to draft and or sign on to some template version of the Statement of Principles, which talks about your, your commitment to principles of, of diversity and inclusion and non-discrimination. And what reasonable person doesn't agree with that? Like, I, I think probably everyone listening to this podcast probably agrees in some sense that diversity, inclusion, you know, equitable treatment of people, these are good things. But there's a difference between believing they're good things and believing it's a good idea to force people to sign on to those explicit, explicitly as a condition for earning your livelihood. That is a fundamentally totalitarian idea. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that we're going towards a sort of police state because uh, you do see some people, you know, the rhetoric gets out of hand and it's like, oh, this is like Soviet Russia. That's not what, what's happening. What's happening instead is, is you have the mashup 
of two forces. On one hand, you have this old-fashioned professional guild. Uh, the, the way that, that law, uh, and to a certain extent medicine and, and some other uh, professions are regulated, in a way it's just it's a holdover from Renaissance guilds, uh, where people who uh, have the reins of power in terms of, of self-regulation within an industry, they hold on to it jealously, uh, the fees they charge are often outrageous. I think in, in Ontario, it's like $2,500 or something. Yeah, just absolutely insane. Um, it's ridiculous. And if, and if you visit the offices of these places, I mean, it's just so much bloat. And, and you know, these people making their careers, uh, shuffling paper and, and, and figuring out, you know, no, new hoops people have to jump through. Uh, it's, it's, which is, I, it's not fine. I think it's awful. But it's no different from the way these professions are regulated anywhere else. It's a very old-fashioned, bloated, self-interested kind of thing. And then you have this Renaissance-era idea of self-regulation uh, that, that mashes up with this Twitter-era hyper-wokeness where people are saying, unless we are seen to do something that's in keeping with this very faddish hashtag idea of promoting these ideas, and again, the underlying idea is there's, there's nothing wrong with them, it's the idea that everyone has to be like a cheerleader for them on pain of losing your ability to earn livelihood. You, you take that sense of activism and you mash it up with the regulatory monopoly that something like the, the law society has, and then you get a real problem because you get the old hidebound monopoly combined with this sort of social panic uh, that you get from Twitter, and that's how we got this sort of Frankensteinian thing of uh, the statement of principles, which I think even the champions of the statement of principles realize they've overstepped, and it's a freakish thing that that is just wrong. But at this point, they 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 can't back down. But like, I think that makes the problem worse. I, I think there's a lot of people, especially well-intentioned white people, they think they have the original sin of of white privilege. And, and sort of toxic whiteness, or whatever the expression is now. And the only way to absolve themselves of it is to sign on to the most fashionable social justice policies imaginable. And then they will use the monopoly regulatory power of the law society to ram it down everybody's throats. It's a disgusting phenomenon. And the people who have the guts to say it's wrong are often people like Murray, who have some personal history, or their family has some personal history, in, in the persecution of heretics or whatnot. Uh, in, in his case, um, God, I think his background was, was he's Mennonite. And in his essay, he talked about how Mennonites in, in Eastern Europe, you know, there's often deadly persecutions of them. And, and, and many of the people in the so-called so intellectual dark web or who write for Quillette, many of them like me are Jews because their families have historical memories of periods where, you know, to be outside the socio-religious intellectual mainstream uh, could get you killed. And I'm not saying anything like that is at issue here. Like, you know, the Law Society of Ontario is not going to dispatch people to gulags. Uh, but the same impulse to punish heretics and to prove your own loyalty to the most popular conception of, of, of the dominant ideology at that moment, uh, that is a common element, you see. And and people should know better. You know, the U.S. states, the state of New York in particular, it used to ask people, as a condition of becoming a member of, of the bar, uh, you know, some variation of, like, do you, do you forswear, uh, you know, do you promise that, that you're not a member of the Communist Party, that, you know, you, you pledge allegiance to our democratic nature of government, um, you're not a communist, you're not this, it's sort of like a Red Scare version of, um, a, you know, Red Scare ideas embedded in uh, the process for becoming a lawyer. And, and a lot of this was struck down by the court saying, you can't leverage your regulatory power to, to put ideological tests on people. It's, it's, it's a fundamentally anti-democratic thing. And we, we learn nothing from that. We're, they're doing exactly the same thing on, in Ontario. And again, I'm not a communist, but if somebody asked me, said, you know, swear, you know, put your... Make a statement of principles that you're not a communist as, as a condition of becoming a lawyer. I'd say, I, no, I'm not. I'm the furthest thing from a communist, but I'm not going to sign that piece of paper because that's, that's not something people should do in a democratic society. It doesn't matter if it's forswearing communism uh, or forswearing bigotry. It's the same anti-democratic impulse. And, uh, and I'm glad that Murray uh, had the courage to say so.
Well, with that, Jonathan, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to push this too long. I, I feel like we could do another two or three episodes on all of uh, your career and everything else. And I'm, I'm sorry I've missed a lot of the questions I normally ask about life balance and everything. But Well, I think that's a polite way of saying that I droned on too much about the things that you did ask me about. <laughs> Not at all. No, I really enjoy that. Thank you very much, everyone. That's Jonathan Kay. <laughs>